You're listening to The Phil Hay Show, a podcast brought to you by The Athletic, along with The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan, and with me from The Athletic, remotely, it's Phil Hay. Hello, everybody. And from The Square Ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. And Moscow White, Daniel Chapman. Hello. The football season may well be on hold at the minute, but The Athletic is still home to 400 of the best sports writers out there, and in these very strange and uncertain times, they're still hard at work telling unique, engaging and informative stories. And The Athletic can keep you connected to Leeds United and all the sport you love. You can sign up now for a 90-day free trial to see for yourself. Head to theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. Well, still on lockdown now then, Phil. Do we have any latest updates about the state of play and any likely return to football? People will probably have seen the, the, the latest statement from the EFL, um, Premier League and everybody else saying that, that for now, football and training is suspended until May the 16th, um, which obviously takes us a, another month on. But I think there is a, a genuine feeling or a genuine hope that, that actually some form of training might resume on May the 16th and that this isn't just a, a kind of holding statement and a, a date in the sand which is going to have to be extended. I think clubs are starting to think that, that they might have to get their ducks in a row with a regards to thinking about getting back into full training about how the, the season that what's left of the season might fall into place about whether or not they might actually be getting close to the point of, of a resumption it still feels though like we're, we're quite a, a long way away from that and, and there is a genuine mood amongst clubs certainly in the championship that everybody will need a window of three or four weeks um, to train in full before they start playing games again um, there is a desire uh, with, with certain clubs to have friendlies before that happens to get themselves a bit of match practice and, and to pick up match fitness as well and and at the moment the EFL are, are hopeful that clubs will sign players off on holiday because um, the PFA and, and, and contracts insist that players have a set amount of, of annual leave every year a set amount of, of time off which is essentially meant to be a break between the end of one season and the start of the next but given the position we're in um, and given the fact that, that this delay is is going on for a while longer yet the, the EFL are keen to see clubs sign the players off to give them their allotted annual leave and to have them back around about the middle of May to begin training sessions but at this stage nobody's able to say if they will be back um, if if they will start training in full on May the 16th and as we always say on this they're, they're going to be dictated ultimately by government advice because the, the lockdown rules are still in place and, and are going to be in place for at least another month and if that extends beyond May the 16th it seems highly unlikely that clubs will be able to pull players back in to do full training sessions. Have you seen the um, recommendations in America today? You know, they do the similar sort of press conference that they do in the UK. And the chief of health there has been saying that they're favouring perhaps that like the hot house approach, you know, where they put them all in uh, very close proximity to the stadiums in hotels, a bit like was proposed here, really. There are definite options like that and that was what the, the Premier League were discussing right back at the start was the idea of playing games behind closed doors in a, in a small geographical area which meant that players could be in hotels which were essentially in lockdown themselves and were sanitised and cleaned regularly and, and players kept in isolation and, and away from, from the general public and it's going to have to be something along those lines. I mean, I, I obviously keep in touch with Leeds regularly about this and there is literally no expectation on their part that when the games, if and when the games start, that they will be anything other than behind closed doors fixtures. Um, there's simply no expectation at all at the moment that you'll be able to have crowds in the stadiums, certainly to begin with, but I think it's probably unlikely if you're cramming 
nine games or nine games plus the playoffs into 56 days which seems to be the the EFL's time frame for finishing the season that you're going to be able to to have a scenario where supporters are coming back into the stadium and, and where Ellen Road for example is housing 35,000 people it's it's too big a crowd it's too many people in, in close proximity but I still think it's going to throw even behind closed doors fixtures are going to throw up the issue of how do you manage people who want to come down to the stadium anyway how do you deter them from doing that what about the medical staff who would have to be involved in the game because the EFL have have very strict rules about the the medical provisions that have to be on hand when games are going on in part for the crowd but but also for the the players as well and it's pretty clear that the medical resources are needed elsewhere at the moment so it it is hugely complicated but I think in a lot of ways clubs are leaning towards as you said the the kind of hothouse way of of trying to find a way to do this which kind of keeps them and and players and, and coaching staff isolated and, and away from everybody else and allows them to find some way of, of finishing this off in a, a very, very unconventional manner, but nonetheless finishing it off and, and getting to the point where the season is finished after 46 games. Is the potential here for the players to have to separate from their families during this period as well? Or is it going to be, are they going to be still the aim for them to be living at home and just going to the games and training and maybe having a lockdown period of maybe 24, 48 hours just before the games? Well, what's quite interesting when you speak to people at various clubs is that none of these proposals sound like they're anywhere near as far forward as you would expect or as far forward as, as what you you read or, or what seems to, to be being discussed in, in the media and I think that is the sort of issue that's going to have to be nailed down. I, I can't imagine a scenario where they wouldn't have to be away from their families, particularly if in the case of the Premier League where they were talking about trying to trying to sort this out in a small area, you know, they're talking about going to the Midlands, using stadiums down there to do this and of keeping players isolated in hotels. I think it would be inevitable that they would have to separate from their families for a while and would have to find some way of being as contained as they possibly can be while while this plays out. And and I think the fact that it is going to be so complicated and, and the fact that it, it will require measures which are, are very, very stringent tells you how worried in particular the Premier League are about the money that's involved in this. And, and I know there's the discussion about integrity and, and the importance of finishing the competitions and clearly from Leeds United's perspective, it's a season they, they do want to finish because they're in prime position to be promoted. But when you get into the Premier League, the, the main consideration here is the cash, it is the TV money. It is making sure that financially the league isn't hit in a way that causes real or, or lasting damage. Um, so I think if they can find a way, they will find a way. But it's a, it's a good question that because I find it hard to imagine that players could be travelling from all over the country to these fixtures if the rules on lockdown with them are still so strict. Moscow, I want to ask you a question. Um, back at the start of this whole lockdown thing, we said that we couldn't imagine Leeds United getting promoted behind closed doors because you just imagine that thousands of people would turn up and it's one of the things we've just touched on there. Do you think that's changed now, if that was the only way to do it, to get the season finished? I think people are probably a lot more realistic than they were about how serious this is and has become and is still becoming. Uh, it doesn't seem like we're at the the peak of uh in terms of numbers of people dying and it is a hopefully the, the, that sobering thought will carry through towards whatever form the the end of the season takes if it is behind closed doors and and people just have to accept that it's something that you'll you'll have to watch on tv and you'll be watching players celebrating in a an empty stadium and as as weird as it's got to be i'd kind of hope people might embrace the weirdness it's going to be a a one-off unless next season turns out to be the same but let's not go that far into a dismal future i will never see anything like it so stay at home and watch something absolutely unique i suspect there'll probably still be the the strong draw 
as we see, you know, parks are very tempting. Going outdoors in general is very tempting. And um, Leeds City Centre, even if the, the pubs are shut and it's ringed with whatever security you can, is going to be a very tempting place on the afternoon that Leeds United are promoted to the Premier League. Interested to see how ripped John uh, Kevin Augustine has been looking, Phil. Well, he's he's actually one of the beneficiaries of of this lockdown in, in the sense that he had a hamstring injury when the season was suspended, although he wasn't far away from returning to training. And I think inevitably, Bielsa being Bielsa, he would have gone through at least one, but maybe a couple of under-23s games and, and would have been worked hard before coming back. But I think he, he, would have, he would have dropped back into the squad for potentially the last five games, something like that, at which point it, it was possible that Leeds might have been promoted. Clearly, he is going to be fully fit or, or should be fully fit by the time the season resumes. And I spoke to Rob Price, the, the head of medical at Leeds last week, and he said they've got to the point with Augustine now where they're working on his sprint mechanics. So just trying to, to get him back to the point where he feels comfortable sprinting at, at full pill without his hamstrings causing him any grief or without any concern that, that they may be about to go again. So he sounds like he is, without having gone through the motherball sessions and all the rigmarole that, that Bielsa asks for, he sounds like he is very, very close and, and would probably be part of the A-team. Um, certainly if, if Leeds do have three or four weeks to warm up again, part of the A-team when, when they get back to playing games. And, and likewise, somebody like Adam Forshaw, I think it's likely with Forshaw that his recovery and, and his need for a, a, a proper full pre-season would rule him out of any games well, games to take place in, in June or July, but but actually, suddenly he's not you know a million miles away in, in the way that he was when he, he first had his surgery. And I don't think there's any expectation at all that he would be involved in, in what's left of the season. But th- this is the thing, across the country, there are players who will benefit from this because it will give them a chance to get fit and it will give them a chance to, to get involved. So Augustine is, is certainly one of them, but I think the bigger concern at, at Leeds would be that while well, you've got Augustine claiming the slope and his trajectory going up to meet where the other players are at, they're desperately trying to make sure that the trajectory of the other players doesn't drop to the point where they're below the level they were playing at when, when they were turning over teams so comprehensively as they were in, in that run before the games were suspended. So we've seen they're doing lots of fitness work and on top of that we've learned across the last week with all the various interviews that lots of players have been watching Disney Plus and there have been lots of nice little bits of video that have, have slipped out, including the wonderful Jenny Alioski, who did his bit of video wearing the jacket of a pimp, I think it was. Uh, in the meantime, Phil, you've been becoming pen pals with Luciano Becchio, so talk us through that. Because I haven't fully read this yet, I've only skim read the article, so can you give us some detail on that? Well, Becchio's been on the list to be interviewed for a long time, and, and really since he went from Leeds to Norwich back in 2013. And, and I, always, I was always intrigued by the fact that when players go from clubs, and particularly when they go in, in the manner that that Becchio did in the end he, he handed in a transfer request and he, he went to Norwich in um, in January 2013 and there was a breakdown clearly of, of his relationship with Neil Warnock and an equally kind of antipathy between him and, and the board as it was then you wonder how that what that's going to do to a player how it's going to damage their relationship with the club the relationship with the supporters and it's not difficult to find people who for example bemoan the fact that Beckford disappeared to Everton at the end of that promotion season you can find people who resent the fact that Snodgrass went when he did that Housen went to Norwich even though it, it was not Housen's decision at all to, to accept the offer for him but with Becchio it, it, it's never sour things with him and, and he is I think one of the most popular players of, of that era 
bar none. I, I think if you asked around and present company included, certainly one of us, then he he is he does seem to be as revered a, a character through those League One and, and LA Championship years as anybody else. So I got in touch with him via Instagram and said, look, I'd like to interview you. It'd be great if, if we could do this at some point, particularly, particularly in the circumstances, because there's nothing going on at the moment and, and it would be a, a great piece to do and he came back to me and said I'm more than happy to do it but my English isn't great I, I get the sense from your messages and I must confess I was using Google Translate he said I get the sense that your Spanish isn't brilliant either so why don't we given that you can't come over and get a translator or anything else why don't we do this via email you drop me an email I'll ask a question I'll reply and we'll go back and forward and I must confess that at the start I, I was really sceptical as to whether or not he'd have the patience to go through three, four years at Leeds and, and, and to answer all the questions that I had for him. But bless him, he stuck with it for four weeks, back and forward. Um, we got through about 150 to 200 emails in the end. And he answered absolutely everything. He, he was happy to speak about everything from, you know, the, the, the good things like the football and the, the relationship with Beckford and his goals and Millwall at home to, you know, the, the more complicated aspects like Warnock and, and the way in which his career at, at Leeds ended. And, and was also very you know, very candid about the way his career in, in general ended, the, the sort of family issues that he had. And it was an absolute joy to do. And and I did come away with the feeling, and, and you, you're always a, a little bit wary of this because players always speak highly Leeds United and, and they always kind of profess love for the club. But you do get the sense that he's very, very grateful to Leeds for the fact that they put him on the map. And, and I think he knows that his career wouldn't have been what it was had he not come here in pretty random circumstances when he rolled up in in Ireland on pre-season on trail in, in 2008. Moscow, I presume you're all oiled up and ready to go for this bit. What does Becchio mean to you? By the end, he'd basically become the only reason to turn up and watch Leeds play as everything kind of dismantled around him. He was pretty much the, the last of the gang to go. And um, it was interesting in Phil's interview that he does echo the feelings that we heard from Robert Snodgrass in particular after Johnny Housen had gone and, and all the players at that time from Beckford to Johnson to Kilkenny to Gradle to um, even Adam Clayton were all kind of going for the same reason that they had ambitions and they were happy to stick around at Leeds for whatever money they were getting as long as they felt that the club was ambitious as well. And then when they got the feeling from the top from Bates, from GFH, then from, I think, Neil Warnock in particular, who were, who didn't please Snodgrass in any way, that the, the club's ambitions was not matching theirs, then the money that they were being offered from the Premier League became irresistible. And Becchio was, uh, yeah, the, the last of that, that kind of gang to go. And when he went out the door, you really did realise it had all gone horribly wrong. And he had answered every question put to him at Leeds up to that point, which I think is the, the thing that you look back and he should probably be exceptionally proud of, came from Spain as a as an un, unknown in this country. Could he do it in League One? Absolutely did everything you could ask of him as Beckford's partner and was vital to getting us into the, the championship. And then um, after Beckford had gone, would he be any good in the championship? Yes, he could. Could he play on his own? He could play even better on his own than with, than with Beckford. And to get himself onto the all-time top 10 league goal scorers list, doesn't matter if it was in League One that he scored his goals, Doesn't he's, he's up against, um, he's on that list with players like Tom Jennings, who 
played almost a completely different game. It's just a, a list of the top 10 players who've put the most goals in the net in league football for Leeds United. And he's on there and he deserves to be. And he deserved, I think all the players from that generation deserved to be at a club that had the same ambition they had. It was ridiculous that Housen and Snodgrass and Beckford um, and Becchio all ended up in the Premier League at different clubs when with just that little bit more ambition, they could have been there together with Leeds. I always found with all of them that they reached the same mindset, which was, is there anything happening here? No. So in that case, I guess I might as well go. So when Housen was called into Grayson's office and told you know, we've accepted an offer from Norwich because your contract's up at the end of the season. Housen's attitude was, look, obviously I want to stay because I, I'm a Leeds boy, I'm a Leeds fan. And, and it, you know, no, it was painfully obvious what it all meant to Housen. But when the question was asked, where's this club going beyond the, the end of this season? It's kind of general shrugging of the shoulders. And, you know, likewise with, with Snodgrass, when he went to Norwich, it was the same. It was a case of, are we going to go up this year? Probably not. And, and are we going to go up the year after? Probably not. So why am I hanging about here? And, and why don't I actually head somewhere else where I might be able to push myself as far as I can go and, and better myself? And I always remember Eddie Gray saying to me about Snodgrass when he left for Norwich. He said, to be honest, I would be disappointed if Snodgrass didn't want to take that move because it's in the Premier League and he's been here for four or five years. It doesn't look like Leeds are going to go up. It doesn't look like they're going anywhere. And I like the fact that he's got a lot of talent and and he wants to make the most of it. And I do think... You could easily take the view with Becchio that in the end he moved for the money or he want, you know, he, he just wanted to go, he, he wanted to go to the Premier League, he wanted the, the brighter lights. But I'd go back to something earlier in the interview when he, I asked him about McAllister and, and I remember a lot of players being at Leeds being very, very happy when McAllister was sacked because it had all got... It all got a bit bitter and twisted, and none of them felt like they were going anywhere with him. And after they, you know, they, well, I say none of them, a lot of them felt like they didn't, they weren't going anywhere with him, particularly after the defeat at MK Dons. I remember seeing the players as I walked down the steps out of the stadium in, in Milton Keynes, and they all looked completely crushed. And, and it wasn't a surprise at all to see McAllister sacked the next day. But Becchio said, you know, I, I, I felt pretty ill about that. You know, he said, I, I felt like I failed him and I felt like it was my fault because I loved working with him and I thought he was a great guy. I thought his, his personal touch was brilliant and, and I thought it was great to be playing for a legend of the club. And I think when you contrast that to, you know, his appraisal of Warnock and, and his view on, on what happened under Warnock, it, it's not difficult to believe his version of events, which is that the club weren't making much of an effort to keep him. He didn't sense much of a desire from Warnock to keep him. And ultimately, he was looking at the bigger picture and saying, this club looked like they're just going round and round in circles, never destined to get out of the championship. And I am the same with Moscow. I don't. I wouldn't hold it against any of the players who left in that era because from 2011 onwards, you got the sense that it wasn't happening at Leeds, and and any player who who stuck around with the talent to play in the Premier League was wasting themselves. What was the main takeaway then, regards to the Warnock era for uh, for Becchio? Well, strangely, when I asked him about Warnock and the football, he, uh, you know, the tactics and everything else, he was actually quite complimentary, or at least he wasn't critical of it. And, and he said, you know, I, I probably have my best scoring run on, under Warnock, even though I think everybody accepts that the best football played in, in that period was the, the 2010-11 season when Grayson went to one up front, which was Becchio, and he had Housen in the team and Gradle and, and Snodgrass. He, Becchio was saying quite rightly that he was... You know, scoring for fun in 2012-13, the, the first half of that season. But I think the main takeaway of it was that towards the end, he felt undervalued. He didn't feel as if the club were particularly bothered one way or the other about whether he stayed or, or went. And actually, there was a line in there which I think resonates 
you know, very, very strongly, which is that did the club want the money? And the answer to that, I think, time and time again with good players in that era was yes, they did. Michael, what's your view of Becchio now looking back? Yeah, it was all a bit of a dream, I think, is Becchio's time. It, both for him and for us, it was at Leeds in particular, I think we got used to around that period of having some awful trialists turn up in pre-season, they play a game or two and then disappear. And this guy turned up and it was actually really, really good. And then the longer we had him, the more we realised he was actually really, really good and was probably much better than League One. I think the contrast as well of having him, this long-haired Argentinian, you kind of expected a certain type of player. But then his role on the pitch was essentially like a good old-fashioned English centre-forward, winning headers, getting stuck in, had an awful first touch, but could score some goals when it got to him around the six-yard box. And I think he's the way he left, I think it did leave a slightly bitter taste at the time, but he's pretty much let off the hook because of Warnock and Steve Morrison. And you can only really think good things about him because you saw what came after. How did he uh, portray that exit then, Phil, when you spoke to him? By email. Reluctant, really, but reluctant, but at the same time realizing that it had to be done. He, he said several times. I, I asked him about, you know, from from the end of the 2010-11 season onwards. I said to him, you know, other players that that we've spoken to, I've spoken to, and other journalists have spoken to over the years have said that they were frustrated with the way in which that team was dismantled by, you know, Gradle going and, and others leaving and the way in which they weren't replaced with players of the same calibre and the way in which it seemed that the club were kind of accepting that they were fading back from a position where a bit of investment at the right time, they could probably have won automatic promotion in the 10-11 season to the standard mid-table area where they were miles off the pace and, and not really competing. I, you know, I asked him about that and he said several times or a couple of times that that you know, I, I started to realise that the club's ambition wasn't matching mine. So I think he knew it was coming and I think he knew there was there was going to be a point at which it, it would come to a head. But he'd said that when he'd signed his first contract extension in 2010, he'd been absolutely delighted and he'd had an offer from Cologne in Germany, but he, he hadn't really given it any thought and he, and he jumped on, on what Leeds had given him because the offer had been fair and he was very happy there and, and he felt like he was really progressing. But second time around, when the, the offer of a new contract came, he didn't feel that it was at the right level he didn't feel that there was a lot of effort behind it and he didn't feel that Warnick was particularly bothered one way or the other whether he was going to stay or, or whether he was going to go so I think there was a reluctance to leave Leeds as a club but I think there was a, a definite determination to go from the circumstances that he was in at that point although he makes no secret of the fact that the, the move to Norwich was an, an absolute disaster for him and didn't work in any way it was very hard mentally for him because he played so little um, and I think given his time again he would have liked to have taken a different move but I don't think he would dispute the fact that at the time he felt he was right to go and we nearly saw him come back as well I think that's the, uh, the slight kick in the teeth here is that he could have come back even if he had been rubbish he would have been back I've been racking my brains to remember whether or not in that tran- that January transfer window, I remember him being linked with the club. And I honestly don't, um, I don't remember that particularly clearly, but he tells the story of Chilino getting in touch one day to speak to his agent and to say, look, we'd like to re-sign you. Do you want to come to the club a second time? And and at that point, Rotherham, who had Neil Redfern as a manager, had, had also made him an offer. And Becchio was coming back from Argentina because he'd, he'd been out to pay, play for Belgrano, but he was going through a divorce and um, he was um, he was away from his children and the, the distance 
distance was too far and it was all very difficult for him on a on a personal level. So the chance to move back to Europe was was ideal for him. And he said it was agreed one day that he would go back to Leeds, that Chilino would call the next morning or the next day. Chilino was never really up in the morning, but would call the next day to discuss this and finalise it and, and to get it done. And the following day, there was no phone call. Um, there was no contact at all. Becchio and his agent tried to phone. The calls were never answered. And in the end, he, he went to Rotherham. And the only thing I would say is maybe it's for the best because, you know, second time around, it never tends to work in the way that it did the first time around. But I think in what was a pretty abject year, 2015-16, it might have brought a bit of joy to the club. I am going to disagree with you there and just throw in the name David Batty because that was a real joy seeing him second time round. That's true. It can be done and and it certainly has been done. But I just wonder in the circumstances that Leeds were in in that particular season with Steve Evans in charge, whether Becchio would have enhanced his reputation or perhaps he would have kept it as it was. But I think it would have been asking a lot of him to have come in and made any difference. He would have finished so many of Bataka's crosses. It's what we were it's what we were crying out for. Bataka just needed somebody in the box to actually attack the ball when he put it over. It could have been so perfect. Moscow's dream team. You need to let that one go, man. You need to let it go. You've tried to find other reasons for Bataka's failure here, aren't you? If if it only it was probably Chilino's fault for not signing a better striker to play with him. And you do wonder if maybe the best time to get a contract signed with uh, Chilino would be maybe three AM, something like that. It'd be definitely be up at about then. 3am or 4 o'clock in the afternoon yeah I don't think mornings were um, his 40 he wasn't a morning person but you do have that vision of him making an offer one day and then the next day forgetting that it had even been even been made and the phone going and thinking who is this who's calling me go away stop bothering me but one way or another they weren't called back and in the end ended up at Rotherham Harry's sponsors The Phil Hay Show, a podcast brought to you by The Athletic. And a quick word about Jeff and Andy, the two ordinary guys who were sick of overpriced razors, so founded Harry's. And they knew there was only one way to ensure quality, buy your own factory. Um, Harry's take less profit, so you get top quality products at a fair price. And the blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. You can get your hands on a Harry's trial set and experience it for yourself. In that, you will get a weighted ergonomic handle, five precision-engineered blades, a rich lathering shave gel, Travel blade cover, all in your trial set. Now, Phil, you've had a blow here, haven't you? Because they've just come on board of Harry's onto this podcast, yet you subscribed only a matter of weeks ago. So that's going to really hurt your Scottish sensibilities paying for it. I'm going to sound like I'm making this up, but yeah, I, I genuinely had subscribed two or three weeks earlier. And in the same way, because of outrage at the cost of razor blades, which to be honest, I've been breaking my heart for years, the cost of them. It's even worse when you go abroad. When we were over in the Far East for a honeymoon, God, the price of them in Hong Kong was unreal. So yeah, that I thought I'll, I'll get on board with this. I'll jump in for cheaper blades, which I have to say are very good, but not knowing that there may be a few freebies further down the line. Never mind. You can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for $3.95 and it helps to support our podcast and it's delivered straight to your door. The razor handle, the five blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover. Get it from harrys.com forward slash Phil Hay right now. That's harrys.com forward slash Phil Hay. It's always been difficult to try and throw a blanket over Leeds fans and categorise them in a single way. So so bravo for the, for the Leeds fan survey that's just been done on The Athletic, Phil. Some quite interesting stuff that's um, that's popped up. What what have you taken out of that? Yeah, we we wanted to sort of gauge opinion on various issues, and and I think particularly 
from my perspective, I'm, I'm always interested in how people look at the finances and recruitment in particular at Leeds, because they seem to be the two the two very political issues and the, and the two bonding issues. I mean, clearly the, there are issues with tickets and um, and particularly capacity full at Ellen Road these days and, and with away allocations selling out. That is a, a, a really big problem. It's it's a, an area that, that is almost irresolvable because of the fact that the that supply is not um, meeting demand at the moment. But and, and you're right. I mean, it's it's a really broad church at Leeds, and you get into periods where it's difficult to find any agreement on on anything at all. But there were lots of in this survey that, or what came out of this survey that that really interested me. And in, in the end, we had um, more than two thousand responses to it. So while it's by no means definitive, and, and while it absolutely doesn't cover the the entire fan base or or even close, it was a pretty you know intriguing snapshot. And I thought. It came out very, very supportive of the club, supportive of the way they are financially, um, supportive of, of what they're doing in terms of the recruitment to a level that, that actually surprised me because I've been very aware over the last two to three seasons of criticism of the, the recruitment department at Elland Road, of the signings that have been made, of, of the wastage from, from signings that haven't worked. And, and, and there's no doubt at all that these things are influenced by results. And I think when you're talking about a side who are top of the league with, with nine games to go, you're always going to find that things lean in a far more positive direction than, than were they struggling to keep up with the playoffs or, or not even competing for the top two. I think you would get very different answers. But it does seem to me that of the people who answered, they are supportive of what the club are doing. And they do think that in terms of the way it's been run financially and, and in the in terms of the way recruitment is, is being handled, that the club are doing the right thing. And, and that was particularly interesting given that last week they announced a, a £21 million loss for the, the 2018-19 year. You know, a su- substantial shortfall in the accounts. But despite that, I did get the sense that a lot of people out there are pretty happy. It's interesting that you cite the, the finances as a political issue, Phil, because I think you're absolutely right. And I'll just turn this one over to Michael and perhaps this dovetails into what we're going to talk about in part three as well. But why do you think that the finances have become so political, particularly because I think that was in part behind why the group of us started getting involved with the square ball 10 years ago. It's strange that we've gone from under Bates, we had a chairman constantly telling us we were financially stable and not spending very much money to now the club's clearly spending a lot more money than it actually has. And the fans being of the opinion that it is stable. I think, I think it, the whole survey really is influenced by the fact that the Premier League is within touching distance. If the exact same set of financial results that we've just had, if we were 14th in the table, I think a lot of people would be worried about it. The reason we're not is because we're thinking, well, another few games and we're going to be the Premier League and then all of our problems are solved. It doesn't matter about this, this debt we've got anymore because we'll, that'll be wiped out in one fell swoop as we go up. But it is, it is an odd thing. The whole survey as a whole is so influenced by the current moment and Bielsa as well. You see him running just through it to such a strange degree as well, like the question about who a club's highest earner should be. I think, was it was it 86% of people thought it should be the head coach? I think if you ask that question probably at any other point in the last 30 years, the answer is going to be the players. I'd agree with that. And, and somebody actually came back to me and said... That question's a little bit binary, too binary, because if the head coach is Paul Heckenbottom, then it should not be him who's the highest earner at the club or, or on the playing side. If the head coach is Marcelo Bielsa, then it absolutely should be him. But my response to that would be to say, if you look at the impact that Bielsa has made for the money that's been paid to him, and, and if you take the view, which I think you should, that 
the head coach is the most pivotal person on the playing side because ultimately if you get it right there a lot of things will fall into place and and a lot of things will follow it should stand to reason that you're looking to pay your head coach the highest wage because you're constantly looking for the best head coach you can get given your league position and your budget and I think it probably has changed the perspective of people having Bielsa in the club you start to realise that you do get what you pay for when it comes to a coach or a, or a manager and it does pay to do some due diligence on them it does pay to appoint them for a reason not purely just their track record or previous success it, it pays to appoint them because they fit and and I have to say that I think with Bielsa if I think of the, the, the entire stretch when I, I've covered the club Bielsa is probably the one appointment or the one decision where you could see how statistical analysis or, or the, the kind of data science that people are going for these days, clubs are going for, has been properly applied to him because they've looked at the way in which he can improve individual players who are already on the books. They've looked at the way in which his football might suit the division, the way in which it, it might work. And rather than just going for him and saying, let's get him because he's quite good or you know he's expensive so it'll look good in a, a PR sense, they've actually thought about this one and they've, there's been some real theory behind it. And because of that, it, it's helped it to work. And I think going forward, Leeds will pay more and more attention to who they do employ as a head coach because it, it seems clear to me that if you get that one right, then you're, you're on good ground. Doesn't it all just point towards the fact that all we ever wanted was a decent football team and to have a decent football team that was invested in Moscow. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. The the level of expenditure is it's eye-watering, but it's it's necessary in the championship. And the problem we always had with with Bates initially, and then it just got weirder and weirder under under GFH and Chilean was just mad. But the the problem with Bates was we never knew who owned the club and we didn't know where the debts that were being built up, where the, what the money was being spent on, because it, it never looked like it was the football team and who the money was ultimately owed to. And that became a, a multiplying problem under GFH. With the, the debts that we've got at the moment, it's a pretty simple setup. It's pretty much all owed to Andrea Ratchitani's company. And so it's down to what you think of of him as a person and what his intentions are going to be as to whether he's going to hook this money out and, and leave us in the lurch or or cause problems further down the line. And for all his mistakes and for all the fact that you should never take your, your eyes off him or any owner of any football club, it's a much easier situation to, to take that, okay, we've spent this much money on, on a football team and it's been put in by uh, the owner of the football club and at some point he might want it back. That's pretty easy, and that's a, a situation that you can look at and go, oh, "That's that's how a football club really works." The the hours we used to spend um, hunting through every set of accounts, finding out that I still remember finding out that our season ticket money under Ken Bates had been mortgaged for a, a loan that tallied up too neatly with the expenditure on the East and refurbishment work. At the same time, that players like uh, Snodgrass and House and were all being sent out of the club. And just feeling this this sense of despair at, at what the, the direction was. What we've been doing, even in that first season when we had the, the stuff with Thomas Christensen and Paul Heckenbottom and Victor Rota signing pretty much anybody who, who we found on Scout, it was all at least tending towards the football team. And the, the results are speaking for themselves now that if you actually concentrate your investment in what the club is there to do which it always says in the first 
uh, lines of the executive summary, even when it was GFH, even when it was Chilino, even when it was Bates, it always said the principal business of Leeds United Football Club is a football club competing in whatever division, not a hotel company, not a construction business, not a um, a loan facility for somebody to draw upon. When you just concentrate on it's a football club, therefore it's got to be really good at the football side. Team starts to get good, fans start to believe they want to give you more money, they want to buy tickets, they want to buy merchandise. The whole thing starts to to get that momentum. And to have come this far from Chilino's approach, which he may well have been fighting fires to keep the club going from his point of view, but his his way of doing it was to strip everything back to the absolute bare minimum. To have sort of come from that point in three and a half years to the edge of the Premier League and a very satisfied um, fan base is um, it's quite a remarkable achievement. Dare I ask it, Phil, are we happy fans now, as Moscow's just touched on there? Are we, are we actually genuinely happy? I think so. Yeah, I, I, I get that sense, which is not to say ecstatic or delighted and like Moscow says, not complacent when it comes to watching what's going on at the club, but... But but you do see you do see swings in the answers. So when we asked, do you think of Leeds United as a financially stable club? Eighty four percent almost said um, said yes, they do. And despite and and important to say that the survey was open for a good twelve hours after the the latest accounts had come out. So people, so some people who are voting very much knew the figures that that were in there. But then when you ask, does it concern you that Leeds operate an annual loss? Fifty six percent, almost fifty seven percent say yes, it does. But again, you move on to the next question, which is, would you be happy to see a drop in squad investment if it meant that Leeds broke even to which 80% said no and and I'd have been amazed if that had been anything other than an overwhelming vote for no we want to see plenty of money ploughed into the team and I think it goes back to what Moscow was saying about the championship this is almost how you have to operate if you're going to compete and Chilino did cut things back he did he did cut everything to to the bone but ultimately that's why turnover was at points around about half of what it is now and and the simple fact is that Leeds would not be turning over close to 50 million pounds a year if they were not competing for promotion if you had them in mid-table at the moment the gate receipts would be lower the the merchandise sales would be lower the commercial income would be lower it would it would inevitably take a hit and even on the the recruitment side you know 87% saying that they're satisfied with with the recruitment which I think is is a, a surprisingly big figure but I don't think of recruitment just purely as as signings, you know, purely as the players coming in. It's also about retention of players. So you have Calvin Phillips staying last season. You have Hernandez tied to a contract at the point where he could have gone on a, a free transfer. You've had what looked like sensible extensions for Liam Cooper, for Luke Ayling. Stuart Dallas, who, you know, now is starting to look like a, a really, really valuable asset, whereas even 12 months ago or 18 months ago, you weren't quite sure where Dallas fitted, whether whether he was really right for, for any role in the team. And, and again, it should always be said that in, in 17-18, there were some big mistakes made with contracts too. There were some long contracts given to players who, who shouldn't have been given them. But I think in the main, little by little and, you know, step by step, it, it has come together. And I think it's hard even just from an aesthetic point of view it's very hard to be inside Ellen Road and to feel that the crowd are anything other than pretty energised and, and satisfied with, with what's going on at the moment and I know that will that will reverse very quickly if say for example the season was to be voided and, and Leeds were then to struggle next year and everybody else was to go and, and the whole thing was to fall to bits then, then clearly the opinion is going to change but I think everybody can see that the way it's been tackled and, and the way it's been approached over the last two years has been very clever and, and in the main has been very successful I would just add on the recruitment 
question and the satisfaction that one of the things that stood out about the January transfer window was that although there was a huge amount of particularly social media heat around not signing a striker on the the first day of the January window and uh, were we going to get Shea Adams and are we going to get Augustine if it's not going to be them who is it going to be and it was a um, it felt like a, a desperate situation at times but we were only talking about one player and if Kiko Casilla hadn't had his his ban impending that would have been irrelevant and thinking back to transfer windows past when we've essentially looked at, at the team and wished we could replace all of them it speaks in a way to a, a well-run club on 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 that side of things that that you don't look at that team and think we need a much better player in every position if we're going to do something this season we were in a, a situation in january where you could look through that squad and say okay bielsa's liking for for a small uh, number is is a bit of a threat but by and large who are you going to get that is better than these and that's a, a big difference from previous seasons when we have been approaching it in a in a panic, assuming first of all that everybody's going to leave, and that was the other side of it, is that there were no real rumours of any important players outgoing, and secondly that we there was no way that we could possibly afford all the players that we needed to bring in. We were there pretty much with a a squad that was um, one good striker away from being complete. It'd be interesting to run this survey again in another twelve months, Phil, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would, and and the landscape will change dramatically if if leads go up, and and they'll suddenly find themselves under pressure to invest more because they'll absolutely want to stay up. And then when you stay up, you, you want to compete. And, you know, certain things change the, kind of change the attitude towards the Premier League, like Sheffield United and Chris Wilder punching so far above the, the weight um, this season. It, it does lend itself to, to probably a small section, but a, a section nonetheless of people who think that actually you should get into the Premier League and, and you should start competing. And, and it has to be said when you look at it and, and you analyse the teams really from the top six down, it, there is much of a muchness there. And I don't think it's difficult if you get things right and if your recruitment's good to get yourself properly into the mix. Financially, I, I don't think the the numbers will change too much. I think people will think of Leeds as a more even more financially stable club if they go up. Although you always have to be wary of the amount that is being spent in wages, in particular, um, and the way in which the uh, the wage bill will climb. But yeah, you're right. I mean, these things change incredibly quickly and and incredibly dramatically. And as I said, if if this season was to be voided, which we hope it it won't be, and it doesn't look like at this stage like like it will be. And, and if Bielsa was to leave and, and, and it was all to, to kind of reverse back towards where Leeds have been when, when Radizani first came came in, you would get very, very different answers to this, regardless of the fact that the figures or the approach might be identical. Third and final part of the Phil Hay Show now then, and this is where we put democracy into action and we turn over the topic of discussion to you via Phil's Twitter account. In third place, then out of the three options, was Paris 1975 this week with 18.3% of the vote. Second, the silver medal position, Gary Monk, always the bridesmaid, never the bride, 34.4% of the result. But the winner this week was the minus 15 with 47.3% of the vote. Nearly 6,000 people voted. And a decision to go back to what was a memorable season and a memorable time for partly the wrong reasons. We keep stumbling onto topics here that really we should be devoting whole podcasts to. And actually, minus 15 points could be a kind of Harry Potter seven episode drama in itself. 
because it, it wasn't even like it was all about the following season. It was very much about the summer that, that preceded it. And even that was was starting to fall into place in, in a negative sense. In the previous season, as Leeds were slipping towards relegation, and more importantly, in the background, were preparing themselves for insolvency and um, an administration that came before the, the season had, had even finished. I mean, people might forget now, we were talking about the, the debts under Radrazani and the fact that he is soaking up heavy losses, but... We're going back, you know, the best part of 15 years here. And and in that summer, Leeds had debts of £35 million, a lot of which had built up in, in the previous 12 months. And when it came to that summer and when it came to the crisis that developed, you, you really realised that the 2006 playoff final, which obviously they'd, they'd lost in pretty abject fashion to Watford, was do or die really for Bates in the sense of them either getting promoted at that point into the Premier League and, and accruing lots of additional revenue or spiralling towards insolvency, which looked, according to the counts, to be pretty unavoidable. And we found ourselves in, in the position, the closing weeks of the season, where it looked likely that Leeds would go down on the basis of results, but you were also starting to wonder when it was that they would go into administration and the 10-point deduction, the, the standard 10-point deduction that the EFL imposed for clubs that do become insolvent was going to kick in and whether actually that might decide the outcome in any case. And, and people will remember that there was the one-all draw with Ipswich at Ellen Road second last game of the season, penultimate weekend, which effectively confirmed that, that Leeds were going down. And it was in the week that followed after that that KPMG were, were instructed to start the insolvency process. And, and by the end of that week, Leeds were in administration. And we got ourselves right at that point into the really, really bizarre scenario where Bates was placing the club into administration, or at least the people who Bates said he was representing the Forward Sports Fund were placing Leeds into administration and planning immediately to buy it back in, in what is known as a kind of Phoenix takeover. And I have to say, in terms of summers where I've been borderline clueless and, and in waters that I did not understand and needed to find out very rapidly about, I don't think anything will ever come close to that. I look back on this summer in particular as the point at which Bates' reign, and he did a lot of stuff that I didn't agree with, but for me, this was the unforgivable one, getting relegated. It didn't feel like it needed to happen. And yeah, it was terrible. I mean, it's probably worth doing a very quick reset on this just so people have got a proper handle on it, a little reminder of how and why it came about. But we won't spend too long on this because it is quite technical. But essentially, we got the minus 15 deduction for exiting the insolvency process without SCVA, which is a company voluntary arrangement whereby the creditors will agree to a certain amount of money in the pound uh, for the company to exit administration. So that's the basic point of origin on this. And the EFL yeah. require a CVA so that they know that you have the creditors' agreement to carry on trading and to carry on playing football. I'll outline this as, as simply as I can. In, in the, the year before um, Leeds went into administration, there had been money invested into the club by offshore funds, including um, one called Aster Investment Holdings, which looked like it had been money supplied for capital or money supplied to, to keep kind of keep the club functioning to pay bills. But ultimately what was happening was that, that this investor and another another offshore firm, Crato, were building up and, and building up debts in the club that meant that when it came to the summer, they were the, the overwhelming creditors. They were the creditors who were owed the most money. They were the creditors who had the most influence 
over the process of, of who was going to buy the club back. And people will remember that it wasn't only Bates and, and the Forward Sports Fund who were trying to repurchase Leeds at that point. You had Simon Morris, the, the former club director, who was tabling a bit of his own and was putting together all sorts of plans, including construction of a, a new stadium, much of which sounded very fanciful. You had a, an investment firm called Redbus, which is fronted by um, a guy called Simon Franks, which, again, that was an individual bid, but in the end, he teamed up with Morris to try and um, to try and get leads at, at the last. And, and also in the background, you had Adam Pearson, who, as Wad had it at the, at the time, was um, involved with Peter Wilkinson, a, a businessman from, from the Harrogate area, and, and again, a, a rival offer to, to the Bates bid and, and the Forward Sports Fund bid. But the, the big peculiarity about this, and, and one of the, the main points of controversy, was the fact that Astor, who kind of accumulated the debt, marauded in the region of £80 million, said that they had no connection at all to Bates, but his was the only offer for the club that they were going to back. So if Bates bought back the club, they would not ask for their £80 million to be repaid. If any of the other bidding parties did, then they would be asked to repay the money, which obviously was a a massive consideration and a huge amount of cash to find, and led to KPMG leaning towards um, the Bates bid, naturally, as, as they would. And in order to get a CVA, you need 75% of the creditors to approve the the offer that's been put forward. And, and when Bates put the, the offer forward, it looked as if, as if it would be passed. It looked as if his offer and his takeover would be processed. But what happened was there was a challenge from HMRC who were owed a huge amount of money in tax and, and were not happy with the fact that they were essentially going to be paid a penny in a pound to be, a penny in the pound to begin with and and the offer increased slightly but ultimately as the taxman was was going to lose a huge amount of money so what KPMG did was they accepted an offer from Bates which didn't involve a CVA it was just a straight buyout and and as you mentioned EFL rules required any club coming out of administration to have a CVA approved by 75% of the creditors and because it wasn't in place, we went down the route very, very quickly of what punishment was going to be imposed or if any further punishment was going to be imposed on the club. And that offer then, the penny in the pound, would have meant that HMRC, which is the tax collecting authority in the UK, would have received £77,000 out of the £7.7 million that they were owed, or you know figures to that effect. So uh, you can see why they challenged it and, and how it was the debt was constructed as well in, in favour of those offshore companies. And as Leeds were now operating outside the rules, they then had to agree a footballing sanction to re-enter the league, basically at a price for re-entry. And the clubs met and agreed that this price should be 15 points, subject to appeal. And now in the end, they opted not to appeal, did the club. They launched legal action themselves, which it's worth pointing out was the reason why they lost this in the end when it went to arbitration because they agreed in their documentation. They said, right, we'll accept a 15-point sanction. We won't challenge it legally, which is what they did. They did, and and we had the, the sort of comical scenario of clubs in League One voting on this. I mean, they, they did discuss at one point demoting Leeds to League Two as a punishment, but it was agreed that, that actually a 15-point deduction would be more appropriate and, and would be more more fitting for it. And so we got, we got into this process of arbitration where, where there was initially an appeal, but it was turned down two days before the season, the 2007-08 season started, and which meant that, that it was in place for the first game away at Tranmere. And, and Leeds continued to fight it and they continued with an arbitration process. And, and 
it, in the end, it was finally settled when Leeds lost um, two days before the very end of the season and the final game at home to Gillingham when Leeds would already qualify for the playoffs. But when it might have changed the division to such an extent that, that they would have gone up automatically. But of course, in, in the background, they had a, a transfer embargo. They had a very thin squad because David Healy had left, Robbie Blake had left, Richard Creswell had gone. The higher earners were moving off the books. They had ideas. They, they still had Dennis Wise as manager. So they had ideas of the players that they wanted to sign and they had players who were kind of in... in primitive agreements that, that they would sign but they were completely unable to do anything until um, very late late stages of pre-season when the games were literally coming around and, and about to start and I pulled up the, the match report for the first pre-season friendly which was a cracking goalless draw away at York City and I mean do any of you remember Nick Haman former Chelsea trainee goalkeeper um, who played the second half there or Danny Gay who played in goal for the, the first half or Russell Fry who played in midfield for the, the second half I mean it it's just a wash with trialists and players who were either out of contract or waiting for contracts some who, who were still under contract like Fabian Delph and Fraser Richardson and, and Rui Marquez but at the time it was so up in the air that you couldn't understand how in that situation Leeds were going to stay up let alone compete for the playoffs because you, you weren't certain that they were going to get to the start of the season and have a proper team in place I do recall feeling at my absolute lowest ebb as a Leeds fan during that summer what, what do you recall from it Michael and then Moscow I mean I was feeling so bad about it I had left the country at this point so I um, I flew to South America on the 17th of July I, lo- I looked this up to see exactly where I was and I didn't return until January so I managed to miss the, the great bulk of this and I, w- I managed to it seems hard to believe these days as well but I went travelling for six months without a phone so I had absolutely no way of communicating so I was sort of doing the odd check-in on incredibly slow internet in internet cafes to see the latest goings on and then obviously once the season started it was all of a sudden some quite pleasant news which was completely unexpected given the complete shambles the summer had been yeah, it was probably my lowest point. And a little bit like Michael, although I didn't go to South America, I did walk away a bit because I'd never wanted Ken Bates at the club anyway, but I'd suffered him up until that point. But I just thought getting us relegated to a, a sporting level that Leeds United had never been reduced to in their entire history was unforgivable. And that it hadn't, it didn't feel like it was something that was kind of a, uh, like a, an accident of sport. It, you know, if, if, Eddie Gray had been manager and he'd been playing the kids and we'd, we'd happened to go down, you'd say, oh, well, you know, Eddie's probably done his best. But having Ken Bates as chairman, Dennis Wise as manager, that game against Ipswich the, at the end of the season when re- relegation was all but confirmed was, and there were people running on the pitch. And the, the thing that I always took away from that was as, the, as fans were being dragged off the pitch by police and stewards. All the Leeds fans were coming out of the cop. I remember particularly one booting another Leeds fan up the arse as they were dragged away down the Northwest Tunnel. And I was just looking around myself thinking, there's really nothing to be gained from being here. This isn't fun. This isn't a, the the pleasant way of spending a, a Saturday afternoon. And it, there wasn't the... The passion there that had built up through the the Wilkinson era when I started supporting, how could you possibly feel anything for a club that was run by Ken Bates and managed by Dennis Wise? It was it it felt I don't buy into the, the you know, the, the Chelsea conspiracy theories. I don't think Wise or Poyer or anybody came to Leeds to ruin us, but they they weren't it just didn't feel like Leeds. And the summer when we were borderline going out of business and it was it was pretty clear that the 
the tricks that Ken Bates was was pulling to keep himself in charge and knowing that coming out the other side, he was still going to be the the boss. I was ready. Had we gone out of business, I was going to go off and, and watch Geisley and was quite looking forward to it. When we didn't go out of business and the, the season started again, I was begrudgingly drawn back because you never really walk away. I wasn't going to the games in the at the start of the minus fifteen season, but every single one on the radio, and it was a, it was a strange time because nothing brings Leeds fans together more quickly than a perception of persecution, and we certainly started the season with that feeling. And the uh, those first games of the the minus fifteen season when we got back to zero, as football was incredible, having it imposed on us by. Uh, the likes of Ken Bates will never sit right with me, but um, uh, the reaction to it and credit to Dennis Wise for, for his part in it as well. Although he didn't hang around very long after it had uh, after it had happened, it was a, a pretty spectacular turnaround from where we were. They were lucky, if, if lucky is the right word, um, in a sense that the season started as well as it did. Because I mean, I remember huge amounts of opposition debates in that summer, particularly because there seemed to be other offers on the table, and then I think Adam Pearson's in particular had, had a lot of popularity with with the the rank and file, even though the, the kind of details of it weren't particularly known. It, it was an incredibly hard sell for someone who had taken the club down and, and taken the club into administration to to say I'm the person who should be taking us forward and. There was a sense in the end of persecution, but it developed because Leeds suddenly started to fight back and because the results were great and because they were making a fist of it. And suddenly there was that awful phrase, but siege mentality, which just would not have been there had the results not ticked over. Uh, I mean, Leeds were, were pretty dismal in, in the first half away at Tramere and uh, the, the first game of, this, of that season that followed. And I remember thinking at half-time, this will get very ugly very quickly because already there is a kind of feeling amongst the fan base that they've been extremely poorly treated through all of this and that the club haven't been handled properly. Uh, but they are still in the hands of both the manager and the chairman who were here previously. And I think had it not been for the fact that the, the form did explode and, and they were so good and, and they, they wrapped up the, the minus 15 point deduction and, and cleared it in the space of five games. I think had it not been for that and had it been for a very difficult, you know, a very different start and a, a difficult start, things would have got extremely poisonous in the way that they had been in that game that Mos- Moscow mentioned, the draw with Ipswich um, at the end of the championship year when they when they went down. And I mean, I, I'm still amazed when I think about it because when, when I recall the, the pre-season tour to Germany and, and at that time we were banned from speaking to Wise and the players because of things that were getting written in the Evening Post and because of the general coverage which was extremely anti-Bates and, and anti-Wise. But, I did sympathise with, with Wise in, in, in one sense, in that he had a lot of academy players over there. He had at least three trialists. He had Prutton on trial, he had Leon Constantine um, on trial, Curtis Weston was, was a trialist as well. And three players who kind of had new deals but weren't able to sign them until the season started, which was Alan Thompson, Matt Heath and, and Ray Marquez as well. And he had no goalkeeper no, or no established goalkeeper because he was trying to sign Kasper Ankergren from uh, from Bromby. Ankergren had been on, on loan at Leeds in the previous season, but that couldn't be done while the embargo was in place and, and while they were they were banned from registering players. And people won't forget the fact that Andrew Hughes turned up from Norwich literally on the day, the Thursday, when um, the 
the first appeal against the minus 15 deduction was rejected by the Football League. And, and he signed two days before the trip to, to Tranmere and signed from Norwich, knowing that Leeds was starting with, with minus 15 points at the bottom of the, the division. And, and it was a case of throwing things together. It was a case of crossing everything and, and hoping that it worked. And sometimes when I think back, I'm I'm still amazed about the way that it did work. And, and I still wonder whether if you went back and tried that again, whether it would be as good as it was or whether actually it would end in, in a very different outcome and, and something close to, to disaster. I mean, I was at that Tranmere game and I echo those thoughts entirely, Phil. I just thought at halftime, we are in such trouble now. We've got this completely threadbare squad. We are skin. We're just picking up players from anywhere and we're at the lowest level we've ever been and we can't get a tune out of this team. It's going to be a long, long way back. But within the space of 45 minutes and a bit of good fortune, you could argue that that result, that game, set us on the path to recovery for that season. There was a trademark Dennis Wise move in that, which he used several, several times, but which paid off for him just at the point where he needed it in the second half, which was he would get his tallest players, and in particular Matt Heath, to spin away to the back post um, as they were waiting for a free kick and look for a free kick to land nicely for, for a header from, from close range. And, and that's pretty much what, what came to him. Tramia weren't ready for it. They didn't read it. There's a free kick, I think, from Thompson, um, Alan Thompson, to the, the back stick. And, and Heath was there, well-placed, and, and levelled things up. And then, of course, at that point, Tramia had been had shown a lot of confidence. In, and I think at that point, had quite a settled team, knew, knew what they were about, and, and had played pretty well in the first half. But at that point, it became very 50-50. And you did start to feel that it was almost set up for a, a late Leeds winner, which would be a little bit like EFL nil, Leeds United won when the full-time whistle went. And of course, it was that kind of close-range, scuffed, unattractive header from Candle that, that did the business right at the, the very end. And I still, you can still kind of feel the, the surge when that went in and, and the sudden feeling of having sat there at halftime thinking, how are they going to get out of this? To, to thinking, do you know what? If this was to get going and, and if they were to get a bit of a bandwagon rolling here, then actually this could turn on its head quite quickly and, and I don't think anybody and certainly I didn't expect this but nobody expected the, the 15 points to go in the space of five games but the way the, the momentum built up in that that spell and the, the late winner against Forrest the, the, the tuna win against Hartlepool when I think again I'm right in saying at Ellen Road Hartlepool were by far the better team on that afternoon and it was a, a Beautiful lob from from Beckford that wrapped that one up. But everything just went for them in that period, which was quite ironic given what had gone on during the summer. But it was, I mean, it's the, it's the best period of form I've I've ever covered. Um, and, I, I, you know, I acknowledge the fact that it was in, in League One, but it's it's one of the few times when I've ever spent time going to games thinking every, every single time they'll win here, they'll win here. And without fail, they almost did. Just returning to the Tranmere game, What's forgotten about that? Because I wrote about the Tranmere game for the summer special that we published, um, the winter special, beg your pardon, over Christmas. And um, there was nearly a second goal for Tranmere. They had one disallowed. Had that been allowed, had it stood, we would have been in even deeper trouble. Well, that's it, really. And, and there were a lot of moments like that. And, and I think when you're in the position that Leeds were in and, and in the position that, that Wise was in, you desperately need breaks and you desperately need things to, to go for you. Um, and I don't remember Leeds particularly playing Forest at the city ground, but that scuffed effort from Candle just falling, um, from Seb Carroll, sorry, just falling beautifully for, for Beckford at the back post to, to rattle it in. And, and as I say, Har um, Harleypool having the better of the game at Ellen Road, clearly the better of the game, but Leeds coming out with a 2-0 win and suddenly back to zero points. And you're right, I mean, I, th I think... 
I think the start was was pivotal. It was pivotal for Leeds making the playoffs that season and, and even having a chance of promotion. But I think it was it was pivotal as well for Bates um, and for Wise to. And uh, okay, Wise did go halfway through that season, but I don't think people were chasing him out of the building in the way that they were trying to after the the draw against Ipswich, which sent the club down from the Championship. And and that was the difference. You went from the point where it felt like pitchforks in the street to the point where there was kind of this. It was grudging acceptance that that was the setup and that was the the way it was going to be and that it was better to stick with it and to try and hope that things would happen and and that things would turn around than it was to constantly fight it but I think even even in that period most of us would have realised or most of us would have thought that it had a a very limited shelf life and that with Bates as chairman it was only ever going to go so far and and I don't think it but it certainly didn't come as a surprise to me that in the end that glass ceiling turned out to be mid-table in the championship. And I guess this returns us back to the, the thought and the point we made earlier about the, the fan survey that you did with The Athletic, that actually when a football team is winning or accruing points at least anyway, it's the number one factor that fans care about and it, and it will mask a lot of other ill feeling or problems. Yeah, it does. And and you have to find the middle ground. And I, I think everybody has to accept that, that you, you can't have unlimited expenditure at a club or, or at most clubs. And because... FFP and profit and sustainability is is being applied these days and people are receiving sanctions for breaches. It's more important than ever that you have a business model that does kind of conform to the rules as as they stand and the rules that as as they're set by governing bodies. But I used to have this argument with, with Sean Harvey that he was always insistent that the strategy at Leeds was right and that the financial structure of season tickets and so on was right and this was the way to operate and and there was no other way to go about it and people should be appreciative of the fact that the club are turning a profit and and are in decent financial health and I always used to say to him the problem is you're not taking anybody with you you know you're making this argument and and this is your your view of how it should happen but if you look at the disillusionment of the wider fan base and, and of supporters as a whole they're not buying this they're not buying into it they're not enthusiastic about it and ultimately all that's going to happen is you're going to grind to a halt and you're going to end up down a cul-de-sac because the team isn't good enough the crowds aren't big enough to make the team better people are losing interest and, and are losing heart which was very apparent towards the end of, of that, that regime's time and ultimately you do need to try and find a balance like Radrazani has tried to between not spending so much that you cannot finance it and you cannot pay for it, but but not spending so little that you sit in the kind of mid-table position that even when Chilino cut everything back and reduced the losses and, and everything else, that was Leeds. They were a mid-table side. They had a mid-table budget and a, a mid-table wage bill. And because of that, they finished mid-table. And Leeds are too big a club for that. They're too big and they should be too ambitious to be sitting there. And, and you cannot take liberties with the loyalty of the supporters just because they do buy so many season tickets and because they do turn up in 20,000 plus I always think you can rely at Leeds even in dire circumstances on the crowd being kind of 20,000 20 to 25,000 as, as a ballpark figure and, and if you're doing well and if it, if it looks good and if it looks like there's a plan you can sell out Ellen Road without any problem but I think once you do start taking that for granted and once you get complacent about the fact that people are coming regardless of of the lack of ambition or, or the lack of direction. You've got problems on the horizon and that was true of Bates, it was true of GFH, it, it was true of Chilino. And quite honestly, it might, tr- it might well have been true of Radrazani had they not gone for Bielsa um, in the summer when they did. 
good time. And I, Phil, thank you for that. Michael and Moscow, same to you as well. You can catch up with all Phil's articles along with those from 400 of the best sports writers in the business on The Athletic. It's all a bit different at the minute, but you can still find that unique, engaging and informative um, content on there. The Athletic can help keep you connected to Leeds United and football and all the sport across the world. You can sign up now for a 90-day free trial to see all that for yourself. Head to theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. We'll speak to you next week. 